Karl von Miltitz wasn't somebody who would easily give up. As the Pope's ambassador in the Lutheran controversy, he felt he had the authority to make a difference in the ongoing theological issues stirring up Germany. Miltitz was a little more humble about his capabilities in 1520, compared to when he first became enmeshed in the Lutheran dispute a year before. Back in the beginning, he thought he could tamp down all the issues by simply encouraging everyone to calm down. Now he realized that the theological differences were deeper than he first believed. Now that he had an improved understanding, Miltitz adjusted his goals. He knew he was going to need to get a dialogue started between the Pope and Luther. He knew there was going to be no way the Pope was going to extend an olive branch to Luther, but maybe he could get Luther to reach out to the Pope. It was a long shot, but it was the only way out. Karl von Miltitz had no way of knowing that he was initiating the writing of one of the greatest summaries of evangelical theology, the freedom of a Christian. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yakeley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and content of documents from the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. So we need some background just to get into what the Karl von Miltitz, because it's been a few episodes since we've talked about this. Uh, This one has some history to it and and some theology in this episode. Uh, First, let's look at the problems the Roman Catholic Church was having in 1520, in the fallout of relationship between Luther and the Roman Catholic Church. Well, uh, first, uh, the one of the problems the Roman Catholic Church was having was the Turks, which were the Muslims. Yeah, so Turks is a name that's being used in the 16th century to refer to the encroachment of the Muslims from Turkey up the Danube towards uh, Europe from the south, and the Pope was having trouble getting anybody to care enough to go to war with him, partly because it was the Pope's territory that was being attacked, nobody else's, so no one wanted to help the Pope. It was a little bit helper, a little bit more helpful when the Pope was weak militarily. Yeah, another part of this was uh, when, when in the past he had the Pope had gone and asked everybody for a lot of money to support this. They sent money, and, and nothing changed. Nothing changed. The they money never, just kind of disappeared. The money just disappeared, and so. So, you know, there was really a lot of uh, suspicion about the sending any money or any people to fight the quote-unquote Turks. But this was a big problem for the Pope. Another problem that the Pope had was that, theologically, the teachings of Martin Luther were becoming a lot more popular in Germany. Uh, to stop this, the Pope had to had released Exerge Domine in June. Uh, which in was June a, of 1520. Yep. And, and that was the formal warning in the form of a papal bull uh, written to get Martin Luther to recant his teachings. And that bull, uh, in an early episode, we discussed how it was distributed throughout Europe and how it was burned um, in by Luther at the Elster Gate. Well, that wasn't the only problem they had. Uh, uh, Johann Eck was, uh, when he was in Leipzig, and I think we talked about this one also back a couple episodes ago. He had to hide. He had to hide. He had to take off and hide in a monastery so they wouldn't, I mean, he feared for his life in Leipzig. Uh, It was, it was really, uh, they, they, at one point they, they were saying, you know, geez, everybody is on Luther's side here. So this was a uh, this was a big problem for the Pope. Now Luther had his own problems. Luther had first posted the 95 theses in October of 1517. He yeah. had no intention of starting a fight. He wanted to bring about reform, not separation. And for the next 3 years from 1517 to 1520, he was continually asking for a fair hearing on what his teachings were. And we've mentioned a couple of times he wasn't teaching anything that was formally really wrong in the catholic church except for possibly that maybe the pope might be wrong in you know in a situation yes. or two and his answer uh from the church every time he asked for a hearing they just said recant revoke by 1520 he had given up fixing the church unfortunately this meant he had to yield to the knowledge he was going to be labeled a heretic so uh, uh, this really, what happened was when, when Exerge Domine was, was uh, finally delivered to Luther in the fall of 1520, he was, you know, he, he knew. It said, okay, you're going to be a heretic, and he, he knew he couldn't back down from Now, Freedom teachings. of a Christian is written in September of 1520 is when it's, it's being distributed. So the, this the, is all happening at the same time. This is all happening at the same time. So we're not making it, as we introduce Exerge Domine, it's not like the domino of Exerge Domine 
happens. And then Luther writes this. Um, there is some interesting timeline of June publication of Exerge Domine, its distribution through Europe, its arrival at Luther's hands, and, and when freedom of Christian is being written. This is all in the same kind of pot of it's things. It's like within a month. So, yeah. so It was already being worked on. Then. Well, what, what, at least what I was able to find here... Uh, let's go back to Carl von Miltitz. Yeah. Okay. So let's reintroduce Carl von Miltitz. He is one of the few people uh, working to avoid schism. And, and doing so by not enforcing or demanding, but trying to just get people to talk. He now, was the papal nuncio. That's an ambassador in, in, in real speak. Not, not papal, papal speak, but <laughs> that's, that's yeah. uh, the, in, in the way the rest of us talk. Uh, he was an ambassador. He's working to try to find a way out of the mess. By negotiating with both sides. But unfortunately, he was really totally incompetent to be dealing with these kinds of issues. He had no mm-hmm. theological background. Uh, and he really didn't know, understand the depth of the po- things that were being discussed. Miltitz so, and Cardinal Cajetan um, leave Rome with roughly the same mission. Uh, they were supposed to arrive at the same time. Cardinal Cajetan was going to deal with the theological side. Miltitz was going to deal with the political side. They end up arriving separately. Cajunton does his theological thing um, in Augsburg of the fall of 1518. He departs. It seems like things have kind of gotten to this awkward point. Miltich shows up kind of unaware of what Cajunton has done and kind of restarts everything again. Yeah, it's been, it's a a comedy of errors. Uh, So what ends up happening is uh in uh in leipzig in the middle of all this just to re re bring everybody back up to speed and uh, you know luther has a debate with johann eck okay after the cajetan thing after the miltitz miltitz comes in they have a discussion then luther gets into a debate with uh, with uh, because miltitz had actually secured some silence that's true that's true good and point then eck, and that. uh there's these kind of debates between Eck and Karlstadt yep. and Luther's like, I was going to be quiet, but since they're talking, I got to talk. And so then we get, well, uh, and, and Eck is always egging. He's, he's trying to bait Luther. He's trying to get, and, and Karlstadt was, was, uh, the basic, basically the Dean of Luther's university there. And, and Karlstadt was just bumbling in this, in this debate. And so, so Luther enters the debate in Leipzig in 1519 and Eck gets Luther to admit that the Pope can err. Yeah. And, and, and this the, then um, attaches Luther to the heresy of Jan Hus, a Bohemian that had been burned at the stake at the Council of Constance. And to be attached to Hus was to be attached to a heretic. And everyone thought this was bad news for Luther. And Luther at first thought it was bad too. And then he reads more about Jan Hus and he's like, oh, well, if that's what he's saying, that yeah. the Pope can err... I'm there too. Yeah. So what? So now, let's. Miltitz comes in the first time. He gets this agreement. It falls apart in the debate at Leipzig. So now Miltitz comes back, and, and they meet again in October of 1519. And at that meeting, Luther agreed to be interviewed by the Archbishop of Trier. And now that that whole thing, and I don't know all the details around, but that falls apart. That interview never happens. Yeah. And so, so then Milton still isn't willing to give up. He's really, he's really showing the old college spirit here. And, and he goes and he's, he's, he approaches, um, the Augustinian well, chapter meeting in Eisleben. And he's going to meet with Johann von Stoppitz, who was Luther's father confessor. Although after the Diet of Augsburg in 1518, the relationship between Stoppitz and Luther is more strained. Yeah. But Milton is going to Stoppitz. And also to Wenceslas Link, who was at that point the vicar general of the Augustinian order, and is trying to get Link and Stolpitz to meet with Luther. And they did. They September did. 6th of 1520, they meet. And so Luther agrees to write a friendly letter to the Pope to assure the Pope that Luther never meant to, to attack the Pope personally. So we are now at the spot where we are going to introduce the freedom of a Christian, because Luther writes an introductory letter. Um, it is... Uh, a little bit conciliatory, um, and yet it is, um, as as it starts out nice enough, it yet still is getting to the point, I'm going to still establish what I say, yeah. not on if you've said it, but if the word says it. And so shortly after Luther's meeting with Link and Stolpitz in September, 
the papal bullock Sergei Domine was delivered to Luther, and this was Pope's uh, not so veiled threat with excommunication. Now, I thought I thought that Sergei Domine was delivered to Luther like October tenth, um, and then Staupitz, I mean, I'm sorry, Miltitz comes back on October twelfth and says, "If you haven't started writing." Freedom of the Christian. If you haven't started writing that letter we agreed to yet, could you date it for that September 6th date so that everybody knows that you're not doing this just in response? In response to Sergei Domini. Yeah, yeah, that this is something you wanted that you wanted to do just on your own without being bullied. And the reason we know some of this uh, conversation between Miltzit and Luther is because Luther writes about himself. Yeah. yeah. You know, and he's kind of... Well, he recognizes he's a, an important, consequential person for history, and he captures pretty much everything that happens along the way. And so this is this is where we are. I think it's helpful, like, for instance, Mike, in this introductory letter that he attaches to the freedom of the Christian, to, it's, it's kind of the gift letter. When you receive a gift, Mike, there is the box with the gift in it, and there's the card. Yeah. Now, I have taught my kids, when they're opening presents... Read the read the card first. Read the card first and then receive the gift. Yeah. This introductory letter is the card. The freedom of the Christian is the gift. Okay. So in this card, this opening letter, uh, he goes, To enlarge upon this, I never intended to attack the Roman Curia or to raise any controversy concerning it. But when I saw all efforts to save or were hopeless, I despised it gave it a bill of divorce and said, let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Then I turned to quiet and peaceful study of the Holy Scriptures. He's saying, I didn't try to create this controversy. I just wanted to study the Scriptures. Um, but Well, at uh, one point he says, I have, never alienated, I have never alienated myself from your blessedness to such an extent that I would not with all my heart wish you and your, and your see every blessing for which I have besought God with earnest prayers to the best of my ability. This is noteworthy, Mike, that when people talk about the Lutheran Church and the aim of the Lutheran Church, one of the things that we should aim for is unity. And Luther himself, in 1520, is not aiming for schism. Yeah. He, he's saying, I have prayed for this peace. I have not desired to be alienated from yeah. you. Yeah. And he goes, now he tries to explain his sharp language. He says, I have, to be sure, sharply attacked ungodly doctrines in general, and I have snapped at my opponents, not because of their bad morals, but because of their ungodliness. He then references Christ and Paul, uh, who were pretty harsh with their opponents. You know, I mean, that was uh, Christ. When someone teaches against the gospel, uh, Martin Luther is saying that as a doctor of theology, he's got to speak up. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, uh, now, once he goes past this this part, this first part, which is saying, you know, it wasn't really you, Pope. It was, it was, it was this other stuff that was going on. He gives a little bit more definition to what was his problem. And he, he tags all of his problems to the Roman Curia. And that, for people, the Roman Curia is referring to kind of the bureaucracy of the Roman church at the yeah, time. Yeah. And he goes, all this is clearer than day to all in the Roman church once... The holiest of all has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think nothing to add to its wickedness. What? That's how bad the Roman Curia has become, that <laughs> the Antichrist couldn't make it worse. So, so uh, you know, he, and he spends quite a bit of time just ripping the Roman Curia in this. And, and uh, I mean, he, he's kind of like a drain the swamp kind of thing. Kind of. So, you know, he's, he's sort of looking at this and saying, you know, he said some pretty nasty things and he's got to tag it to somebody. But he and, says, allow me, I pray, most excellently, oh, this one, to plead my cause and to indict your real enemies. Yeah. Yeah. So... So then it goes into he's uh, that's he's looking for it goes on to complain about Cardinal Cajetan, which yeah. I don't know if that's entirely fair, but he's I think what Luther's trying to do is at this point still put the best construction on the Pope and imagine that all the ill that has been going on has been independent, independent, and if only he would finally listen. I remember in some email exchange I had with someone, it became clear to me that this person was not answering my emails, but one of his assistants was. Mm. And then when I finally talked to him, I realized he had no clue about the preceding three months of conversation. 
Mm. And I think that's what he's kind of hoping for. Yeah, he had no idea at this point that Cajetan was working on orders from the Pope. You know, that, that Cajetan, when, when and Cajetan... And Eck is working on orders from the Pope. And Miltitz is working. <laughs> he, he just wants to imagine they're all... That they're all independent, but that's not exactly what's happening. So uh, he goes... Uh, so he talks about... Argues about... Complains about Cajetan. Uh, he uh, he does say some nice things about Miltitz. He says, uh, uh, you know, at least Miltitz is trying to help out. But then he dives into John, you know, John Eck and, you know, what, what, a, what a problem he's been. Uh, so then he, he, he goes in and he, he asks what I thought was interesting was at the end of the conciliatory letter, he asked for two rules. And the first rule is that, that the Pope intervene and stop those flatterers. And assumes that these, uh, I'm assuming he's talking about the cur- the what we've tagged as the curia, which mm-hmm. is this whole laundry list of people. From, and what's the second rule, Mike? And the, the second rule is, I acknowledge no fixed rules for the interpretation of the word of God, which teaches freedom in all manners must not be bound. I I actually have trouble with that. I have a little bit of heartburn with that. What, what, do you, what I, I guess, you know, because I mean. That the word itself brings forth its own authority. Um I mean, because the, when we're one about... way to think of this, Mike, is the the legitimacy of the word is not found because someone else says it says something. Okay. the The word itself is its self authoritating document. It is its own um, notary. Yeah, and I and, understand. And I that. think that's what he means that we we can't consider uh, what the word of God says as authoritative. Because someone else says that's what it says. We need to have the conscience of mind to see it in the scriptures ourselves. Oh, so what he's arguing for is a self is is to allow scripture to interpret itself mm-hmm. rather than to have a, some sort of system where the, to have the Pope say this is what the scriptures say, yeah. and I am unbound from reading it in any other way. Okay, yeah. When I read that, I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of heretical ways, to, and, and have been for the last 2,000 years, mm-hmm. a lot of heretical ways to read the scripture. This is that, yeah. you know, the, 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 the heresy, the Arian heresy, the, the Pelagian heresy. These are all people who read the scriptures in ways that were heretical. And, you know, and I, I was sort of surprised to read what he was saying there, that he didn't you know, tie that down a little bit better. And, and the later Lutheran theologians uh, end up writing quite a bit about um, the authority of Scripture. And so um, in the 16th and 17th century, there's more discussion about what it means for the Word of God to have its own authority in and of itself, apart from what anybody else says it says. So they give a little bit more background to this, exactly mm-hmm. what he's yeah. talking about. Okay, well, that that was... Uh, and, of course, this is a conciliatory letter. It's not a theological document that he's saying here, that he's writing here. It's just trying to reopen the discussion. And so you're not going to get in this conciliatory letter the, the kind of deep theological discussion that might be expected elsewhere in Luther. But this is... And that makes sense that he wouldn't go into all that detail in this. Um, So now we get to the treatise uh, on Christian liberty, sometimes called the freedom of a Christian, more appropriately usually called the freedom of a Christian. And Luther has dedicated this treatise to the Pope. Okay. All right. um, His hope is largely to say that of all the things that have been brought against him, that this is his answer. Now, what's, you know, when I read through this, this is the first time I actually read The Freedom of the Christian uh, through. I mean, I've heard of it. You can read little quotes, snippets from it. Yeah, and and this was one of those documents that, I'll be frank, uh, you know, because it was always spoken of in sort of hushed tones you know this is this is an important important lutheran document you know i i i always thought it was going to be more weighty yeah. than it. it's really uh I, I i you know after reading this i thought geez every lutheran should be reading this is not that hard to maybe maybe you know maybe, but i think it's pretty straightforward what he's saying here and i think a lot of the um controversy about the role of the law in the life of a Christian, the third use of the law. Yeah. And does uh, Luther, uh, uh, do Lutherans teach that the law has a guiding role? Um, are we bound to the law after we've known the gospel? All these questions about what am I required to do as a Christian? What am I obligated as a Christian to do? Someone may even say, well, you're a Christian, you should do this. All yeah. these kind of sense 
of what is required, what is obligated, read this freedom of a Christian. I think that language of obligation and requirement just evaporates and it becomes now, what do I desire to do? Yeah. So let's, let's dive into this. Now, Luther, um, this is his response to his critics on his doctrine of freedom. Oh yeah. Because if you are free from your sins by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's chaos. Yeah. Because what keeps you going to church? What keeps you being dutiful and kind to your neighbor? If everything is forgiven, why bother doing anything good? That's so, kind of what is being accused of him. He's just uh, encouraging chaos. Yeah, licentiousness and whatever else you want to do, you know, go for it because Luther says it's okay. And he's it's forgiven. He, yeah, he needs to come out and and really define the what he needs to, you know, what he means. And so he There's starts two, out contradictory propositions now isn't it how yes, it starts off yes, right yes. so what are these two so the first one is a christian is perfectly free lord of all subject to none and the second one a christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all subject to all so at first glance luther says okay these seem i'm subject to none and, and I'm, I'm subject, subject to, to all yeah so these are seem to be contradictory and Luther goes and he, he's gonna he's gonna break this up. He's gonna say, well, they're not contradictory. This is, and and he starts it by saying, what you need to do is begin by considering the spiritual man and 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 the bodily person. Now we're we're twenty first century guys, so we're gonna say the spiritual person and the bodily person and the bodily person rather than. So let's start with that spiritual person, which is where Luther also chooses to start. Luther makes the case that our spiritual health doesn't benefit from health, wealth, or etc. by pointing out that there are plenty of horrible people who have all these things. So if your spiritual health was connected to you having good health, then if you get sick, does that mean you're spiritually weak? Yeah, or or wealth. You know, what you know, if if you're a good if you're a good, you know, good Christian, you're going to be wealthy. Uh, and if you're poor, well, you must not be a very good Christian. Yeah. And, and so Luther says, you know, that obviously there are very wealthy people who are miserable people. And there are very poor people who are very good people. And so obviously we're not talking about those kinds of things. They're not reflections of the spiritual man. Because he says, even the most godly men and those who are free because of clearer consciences are afflicted with these things. None of these things touch either the freedom or the servitude of the soul. Yeah. So as we're looking at what makes my soul free from all things, so I am subject to none, um, how much whole wheat I eat isn't connected to this. Yeah, and he goes on to say, you know, how much prayer you do, how much fasting you do, none of this stuff affects your spiritual self. This is not the, these, these are not really uh, affected by the, the physical world. Your spiritual uh, is so what is the one thing necessary for my spiritual health? He goes on, consider it certain and firmly established that the soul can do without anything except the word of God and that where the word of God is missing, there is no help at all for that soul. One thing and one thing only is necessary for Christian life, righteousness, and freedom. That one thing is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he references several Bible verses. Just so you think that Luther hasn't pulled one verse out of context, he pummels us with verses that demonstrate that our soul is in need of the word of God and where the word of God is missing. There's no help for the soul. And now this could be problem problematic for Christians today. Sure, uh, sure. The, you know, the idea that salvation is outside of us. And this is something that I know I see both. I want to have control. Yeah. I want to, as much as I can control my diet or I can control my exercise or I can control what I, my kids do with their phones or what TV I watch. If I could control all those things, my soul will be healthy. And, and here we've had 500 years to digest this idea that, that salvation is outside of us and it's still difficult for us to get our heads around. Now, as, I, as much as I think of families and their young children, they're trying to figure out how to keep their children safe in this world. There are so many fences they try to draw. There are so many filters they put on their computers. If they could just actually feed them the word of God, Luther's saying that's where soul health comes from. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's... You know, this is like I said. This is this is difficult for people. And, and can you imagine what it was like in the fifteen hundreds and fifteen twenty? With all the rituals, with all the protocols, with all the the things that you do this, do that, observe these seven hours, do all this. 
then you can know you're healthy. And it even comes like uh, Kellogg uh, in Battle Creek and the, the whole idea of whole grains. That was a spiritual exercise as well. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 there's all sorts of that. And it still happens today. I mean, the the name it, claim it, yeah. gospel, all that stuff. This is This is all sort of this idea that the physical world and the, the spiritual world are somehow aligned either either as the physical world is a reflection of the spiritual world or that the spiritual world grows from the physical world and luther is saying none of that is true it's all in the word of god he takes such incredible freight with this word um, that where it's missing there's nothing to carry anything to us that's good the word of god is necessary now if we're talking about the Word of God as being no, so necessary, then we have to say, well, what is this Word of God and how shall it be used? There are so many words of God. What is not just the words of God? What is the Word of God? And and, and when he gets there, he says, uh, and I think this is actually very helpful to, to a lot of people in, in interpreting the Bible. And we, we've had a couple of discussions on, on the proper interpretations mm-hmm. of the Bible in this podcast. And what he says is that the word of God is the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, uh, who was made to made flesh, suffered, rose from the dead and was glorified through the spirit who sanctifies. So, so he's not saying as long as you know Leviticus 9.1, I, I don't even have a Bible in front of me. I'm not sure what that is. But it, when he says word of God, he is saying Jesus Christ. Yeah. And um, now... This isn't to say that there are parts of Scripture that we can then cut off because it's not about Jesus. He says all of Scripture in its fullness and sufficiency is found in Jesus. You can't remove parts of the Scripture and say, well, it doesn't have Jesus in that page, so I don't need that page. We need all those pages. Yeah. But what we need is the knowledge that faith cannot exist without connection to the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is something, I mean, in my understanding of Lutheran interpretation of the Bible, I've always thought that, yeah, not every word mentions Jesus Christ, but the Old Testament law is about Jesus Christ. Yeah. The The Old Testament stories are about Jesus Christ, whether you're talking about Joshua or yeah. the falling of Jericho. or you're talking A good about... podcast to get a sense of that Old Testament interpretation. Chad Bird has one. It's called 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, and there's about 90 episodes up right now. And in each one, he just walks through the Old Testament and interprets it. How does this communicate Jesus? Yeah. And, and so so that's really what Luther's getting at, is that, that over and over and over again in the Old Testament, these are, these are stories, these are laws, these are prophecies that are all pointing to Jesus Christ, and they find their fulfillment in him. And, and that that is really what this is all about. And when we read the Bible with that, with that, with that sense then that is a proper reading of the So Bible. a Christian is a is perfectly free lord of all subject to none. Where did this freedom come from? For a man believes with his heart and so is justified. Faith alone justifies. It is clear that the inner man cannot be justified, freed, or saved by any outer work or action at all and that these works whatever their character have nothing to do with the inner man. So if you want to put into context where this freedom comes from, from works, it, it is, he's just changing the role of works. Works don't make you free in your relationship to Christ. If I am bound to sin, if I am enslaved and enchained to evil, what brings me freedom is not that I've worked really hard. It's that I trust in the word of God. And so he goes on, he paraphrases the gospel. He says, if you wish to fulfill the law and not covet as the law demands, come, believe in Christ in whom grace, righteousness, peace, liberty, and all things are promised to you. If you believe, you shall have all things. If you do not believe, you shall lack all things. Just that simple. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about the freedom of a Christian and how that freedom comes not from works, but from the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to talk now about how we're a slave to all. Um, and but before we move into that next section, it's good time for a beer break. Yeah, right now. So so today's beer is uh, bam, bam, yeah, bam <laughs> beer, bam beer from Jolly Jolly Pumpkin Brewery. Uh, now this is the Sour Farmhouse Ale, and it is sour. Yeah. I I don't think I've ever had a beer this sour before. Now Brewery Becker had. A, I don't think it's on tap right now, but they had a, a sour. Uh, beer and at first when i i drank it i thought something was wrong yeah and, and then i looked at the description they actually were big into sour beers when they first opened 
and uh and, and everybody was sort of like yeah we're just like, not tuned for that we want more hops come yeah, on and, so it's uh it's it's named bam because of their jack russell who was struck by a car bounced back up in fine tenacious jack russell fashion and is brewed for all of those who are knocked down have picked up, dusted off, and carried on undaunted. Named after Bam the Tenacious Brewery Dog. So that's that's right on the website there. Yeah. So uh, this is what they they uh, they talk about this. They they talk about they had Ron Jeffries is the yeah. Let's learn a little bit about the Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales. Yeah, Ron Jeffries is the brewmaster. He's uh, his title is brewmaster and chief squeegee squeegee operator. Uh, he's uh, forgotten more about sour beer than most humans will ever know. Uh, he's uh, in Dexter, Michigan, brewed first in De- Dexter, Michigan. He's been brewmaster for quite a while, since 1995. Uh, he's well-known, uh, I guess, in the in the brewery community. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've got a lot of, I, I have a lot of their, their history here on the, they, uh, they, they started out, he brew, started out brewing for other people, but then he started his own, his own brewery. What do you think it means that Ron says he now practices the art of, Hawaiian time. I have a feeling he's pretty relaxed. <laughs> he's pretty relaxed. <laughs> That's my guess. So the Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ale, uh, the title, uh, you think about one of those hiring a marketing company, uh, they can come up with names for you and everything. They can give you a really good logo. Uh, Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales uh, seems like people either love it or don't understand it. And, and you know, it's funny. It's one the, the sour brews the, that that he's he's big into uh it is something that it's it's an acquired taste you really have to you have to be you have to know what you're getting if if like like evan said the first time i had a sour beer it was like huh what what is this and so do you think that japanese beer we had a few episodes ago was a sour beer by accident i I, you know I, I don't know. I, I that Jap- I actually went. I was just in Tokyo not too long ago, and I, I found that. Uh, the, m- remember the beer that they they grew their oh, own with barley, the ancient tree, and all the, that. Yeah, I found that. Oh, so good. It was okay. Good. Oh, it was so good. They now uh, next time I go, I'm actually going to be back in Tokyo probably in this fall, and uh, I'm going to go and find that that brewer that beer the one with the owl on it yeah the the um, and see what it tastes like there that was a hefeweizen i'm going to try uh, they have a they have a uh, um uh they have a brew pub at the tokyo uh, train station okay and so i'm going to go there and and get a hefeweizen and there we we'll, go. we'll see if We'll see if it's if it's. But back to the so the Jolly Pumpkin, their their brewing process, a mashing, which is crushed malted barley, is mixed with hot water as it pours gently into the mashed vessel. The mashed vessel, uh, it's kind of an oatmeal looking porridge called mash. Okay. Uh, if you've gone on a brewery tour, a tour that the mash is is just it smells very yeasty, a very organic smell. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, then the sugars leach away from the grain into the water, and they can be drawn off. And this liquid mix of sugars is called the wort. Um, uh, and then you've got this boiling. A dense, sugary wort is uh, yeah. drawn off the bottom of the mash vessel. So there's a process here. And then the boiled wort is pumped through a heat exchanger. Then there's a fermentation of the coolness. And then there's a maturation. And it's this process that kind of can bring about uh i think the science and the expertise of a brewmaster yeah now, one of the things they do that's unusual here is they have bottle conditioning that is sort of unusual where they they uh they put the beer into the bottle and then they put a little bit of extra yeast in there and then the yeast continues to that's how they get the carbonation yeah uh is that it actually carbonates in the bottle um, and then it's, uh, it also gets a little bit of extra, extra flavor that way, a little bit more complex. That's how I used to make beer yeah. back in the day as I used to allow it, which is sort of a, a you know, a homebrew, uh, the standard homebrew way of doing things, but he's, he's getting, uh, this is an expert doing it, not, not somebody like me. Uh, so he, and the beer does not have pumpkin in it. So if you are worried about this pumpkin flavoring craze that happens every fall, you can still enjoy a Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ale because it doesn't have pumpkin Without ale. any pumpkin, that's right. That's no worry right. about a Starbucks pumpkin ale here. No, no. This is. Uh, I think they do make a, a pumpkin-type beer, though. They do have one pumpkin beer that they, they may sell seasonally. But, but it's not this one. Not this one, no. Um, 
So, uh, anyway. And it does contain gluten. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. Yeah, all our beers contain gluten. So, yeah. um, okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's take a, let's go back to the, the free So, what, let's remind ourselves of the two kind of things that are contradictory. Uh, these statements. One is, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Um, this is the claim that a Christian is not required to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to secure your salvation. We believe in the promise of Jesus Christ. It is the work of Jesus Christ that brings us our freedom from sins. Okay. So that's one side of it. And then the, the, second, other side. the second one is a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That subject to all is really going to be the hinge of how to avoid chaos in the Christian church where there is freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so... Uh, we're going to just quickly go back. Remember that Luther started out with those two sayings, and then he said, you know, you need to, in order to consider this, you need to consider both the the, the spiritual man and the bodily man. Or and the so, inner man or the outer man. Inner man, outer, inner person, outer person. Yes. Keep, we keep trying to... I, I, Luther says man, and so it's easy for us to fall back into that. Hopefully, we keep saying... We're referring to all people. Yes. English language is changing. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, the only thing that... And then he also said that the only thing that can uh, affect the soul is the word of God, which is the proclamation that Jesus Christ lived, suffered, died, was buried, and rose again. So, there's three benefits that we get from the word. The first is that the law and works are unnecessary for your righteousness and salvation. You do not earn your righteousness. You do not earn your salvation by keeping the law and works. That's a benefit of the word. So the second one is the second benefit of faith is that the soul trusts God and his promises so we can finally truly worship God. If, I, if I'm always in fear and in worry of the wrath of God, it is difficult for me to worship because I'm always getting ready. Um, I'm never able to quite worship. Um, it is almost similar to maybe uh, the Mary and Martha struggle uh, of Martha being so busy that she forgets to sit at the feet of God in Jesus Christ and hear his words. And Mary is able to do that because everything else is unnecessary compared to hearing the word. Everything comes secondary. So Luther says, so when the soul firmly trusts God's promises, it regards him as truthful and righteous. Nothing more excellent than this can be ascribed to God. The very highest worship of God is that is this, that we ascribe to him truthfulness, righteousness, and whatever else should be ascribed to one who is trusted. And and you know, this is where Luther begins to set the groundwork for good works, right? So he says, you know, when we trust God, the soul consents to his will. Then it hallows his name and allows itself to be treated according to God's good pleasure uh and then uh, clinging, We're clinging to, to God's promises. Yes. And so it's it's this it's this clinging to God's promises that we 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 no longer are bound to this world and it allows us to be free to serve yeah. uh serve others. I'm free from all things for my righteousness and since I'm free now I worship God. My my work in this world becomes my worship. Yes. Yes. So it says... Uh, now, the third benefit. Let's move to that. Okay. The, the third, third benefit is that faith unites us to Christ. And this will start to give us the mechanism for why we do good in this world is it's not... The holiness that I do is I can't make myself holy. The only way I'm holy is by being connected to the one who is holy. Uh, Luther says, by this mystery, as the apostles teach, Christ and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh... And there is between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of the one true marriage. It follows that everything they have, they hold in common, the good as well as evil. So So we hold in common Christ's good, and he holds our evil. What a deal. Yeah, it's a good deal. Um, uh, Joel Hess, a pastor up in Cadillac, has just written a, a document talking about why we stand for the bride. Um, at a marriage and he used to be so annoyed he says he he remembers a uh, one pastor saying the only people we should stand for is christ himself why do we stand for the bride and then he uh, joel writes about how uh, recently he was at a wedding where the bride is descending the staircase and there's this lighting and it's magnificent and he reminded himself that marriage is meant to be a reminder of what christ is doing with this church and we stand for what christ is doing 
So we stand for marriage as a reminder. It's what Christ is doing. Oh, okay. So it was a neat. It's, you can find it at the Jagged Word, uh, which is a blog of uh, Lutheran pastors writing different um, documents. So uh, he finishes up this section by building on what, we, what he said earlier. He starts by going back to the second benefit of the faith, which was, uh, um, let's see, that the, that the trust, that the, the, the be- second benefit of the faith is that the soul trusts God and his promises so that we can finally truly worship God. So when he says that um, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, rather than hearing that as wrath that we are worshiping other gods, once we know God, we worship him as the only God, and we worship in our in our outer man. Then. Now, one of the things that I thought was, you know, if you don't trust God when he gives us a promise, you're really effectively calling him a liar. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this is not a very good place to start worship. You know, if if, if we're to worship God, you know, it's really, it's, it's an act of humility it, to say, I don't have all the answers. I'm worshiping him because he's God. Yeah. And I trust him. Yeah. yeah you have to have trust. And I think that changes that. the way people interpret scripture. I think um, in the modern struggles around the Bible today, it's more, do I trust the word of God or do I trust myself? Yeah. And there's this question of science, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, that's a whole different discussion, but that's. Yeah, really, the, 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 uh, I'll just make one quick comment. I personally don't believe that, that science and the Bible are at cross, cross purposes yeah. here. I, I, I think that they're talking about two different things. But let's... let's... There's a, a Templeton um, Foundation supplies a grant every year to theologians and scientists that are interested in that question. Okay. Um, and so, if Mike, if you want to apply for a grant, there you go. <laughs> there we go. Now, so we've been looking mostly now at the first proposition. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And we've gone through those benefits of having that. Uh, we can trust God. Uh, we are married to Christ. And as he holds our evil, we hold his good. And, and we've started to sort of show how Luther is beginning to pivot to that second bullet. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. He's he sort of mapped it out a little bit, but now he really gets into it. So now looking at the physical person or the outer person, uh, Luther says, Now let us turn to the second part, the outer man. Here we shall answer all those who, offended by the word faith and by all that has been said, now ask, If faith does all things and is alone sufficient unto righteousness, why then are good works commanded? We will take our ease and do no works and be content with faith. I answer, not so, you wicked men, not so. That would indeed be proper if we were wholly inner and perfectly spiritual men. But such we shall be only at the last day, the day of the resurrection of the dead. So he goes on to say, in this life we must control, uh, 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 I'm sorry, in this life he must control his own body and have dealings with men. Here the work begins. Here a man cannot enjoy leisure here he must indeed take care to discipline his body by fastings, watchings, labors, and other reasonable discipline, and to subject it to the spirit, so that it will obey and conform to the inner man and faith, and not revolt against faith and hinder the inner man, as it is as it is the nature of the body to do if it is not held in check. So it's interesting to me that he's he's advocating for things like fastings, watchings, labors, and other reasonable disciplines. So now think about baptism, Mike, and, and baptism of an infant. Um, the inner man, the inner person is restored by the word of God and not by the works that that person will do. Yeah. So I think we get here a great understanding of why infant baptism is legitimate. Because that baby is justified not by the workings of their outer self, mm. but they are justified by the inner working of their soul. And how has that been accomplished? Through not by Yeah, through the word. Not by their works are we saved. But we are saved through the word of God at work in our inner soul. And we are connected to uh, our inner soul, our inner being, is connected to the word of God through God's promises in baptism. Right. So I, I, I think there is so much that can spur away from this. He doesn't talk about baptism right here, but I was just thinking about that as we think about this reliance on the word of God to make us free really gives explanation for why infant baptism is legitimate. Uh, if someone waits to an adult where that adult can, through their own workings and doings, make claim to their faith, then we've changed what is 
the working agent in life. So, so what what we're seeing here is Luther is beginning to talk about having the outer person conform to the inner person. So we have the inner person who is... That's what's renewed first is the inner person. The inner person is renewed first. And we need to be subject to the word of God um, because we're not perfect yet. The outer man needs to, by discipline, be conformed to what the inner man is. And, and so those disciplines, he mentions fastings, he mentions watchings, which I don't know exactly what that is. Uh, labor is reasonable discipline. So all this stuff is is all designed... To help us limit our laziness and our lusts. Do you think watchings is referring to keeping the hours of prayer? I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. We'll have to find out. Maybe someone can write in about that. Yeah, that one. So uh, it's really good to remember that Luther also stated that our physical labor can be done to the glory of God. So this is another, uh, you know, when when we go to work, we, we talked about this, I think, in a previous episode. Uh, when we were talking about I, I, uh, the vocation, the vocations, and and how how when we serve other, we can serve others by going to work. The garbage man, I think we used the mm-hmm. example of the garbage man. If he doesn't do his work, you know, there's all sorts of problems. yeah. God's providential care, the glory of God for how the world is supposed to work, is found when we do what God has called us to do. Yeah, and part of that is just doing our work. And then when he gets paid and he takes care of his wife and his kids and takes care of his house, which helps the neighborhood, all of this, these things that we take for granted are actually, it can be done, can easily, not easily, can can be done to the glory of God. But in order to do those to the glory of God, I think there's this constant reminding that when he talks about fast, when he talks about watchings and and disciplines you know uh, spiritual disciplines i think he's trying to say you know we need to remember we need to have the discipline to remember that these i don't need them for me right i need the to do them for the benefit of my neighbor yeah i'm not doing okay all these things because i need them to change my inner man I'm doing them to help support and care for my neighbor and their needs. Now, can I, I the one thing, I'm, I mean, if you do this stuff and you remember that, if you're always remembering that this is all done for the glory of God, that this is this is something that yeah. you're doing, this work that you're I doing. I love God by serving my neighbor. That I, I love God by serving my neighbor. You're, I would think that you're not going to be as bitter in your work. Yes. You that's a, and Luther's life was largely do these things to avoid the wrath of God. Now that the wrath of God has been removed, what motivation do you have to do your work? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean there, there is I still, care about my neighbor. That's why there, there, there's still the sword, right? There's still the the temporal sword, the, the the sword of this world, right? Where where the the earthly authorities are going to come down on you, mm-hmm. right? If you don't do what you're supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to do, and and so it's easy if we're if we don't have this attitude, if we don't seek to align our outward self to our in to the spiritual self and this is just a question for you uh is that uh, it's easy to be just constrained by the by the sword of you know of authority yeah and it and in that case it's easy to become bitter and that and that's sometimes referred to as the first use of the law of the curb yeah yeah and and in civil society uh for people who do not know the word of god that will be the only way by which we will motivate and encourage others to do things is by the sword. Yeah, yeah. And so... The so, curb of the law. So what this does is once you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now we can we can do these things with joy. It's starting to say, what would Christian community look like? Well, we may end up doing the same things as someone who's living by the sword, but the joy is going to be different. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of... Uh, so uh, the the next part of this is uh, that that was that was something I always sort of struggled with was this idea because I'm coming from a, a Catholic background you know I mean fasting fear the wrath and, of God and fastings and all that was a big part of that and that's gone in my Lutheran experience mm-hmm. you know we no longer do fasts and you can least, if you want <laughs> and I actually I've done fasts you know I, yeah. I still I still fast occasionally when I when I start getting too full of myself I think there's a difference in um, someone saying, this is what I need right now to help me remind of myself of humility versus a pastor saying, you 100 people, you all need to do fast. Yeah. Because yeah. that's that ordering and commanding of the church is not as much in this role now as I think I'm free from those things. So why am I going to do them? I'm not going to do them just because you tell me to do them. Yeah. There's no, there's no spiritual, the only benefit to a fast that I, I mean, having, I I still fast occasionally, like I said, 
the only benefit is, like I said, when, when I am becoming selfish. It, and, it brings you focus and it, reminder of your own weakness and your need for a savior. Yeah, it does. And I, I find that helpful. So, uh, you know, that's one of those things. So that, then Luther says, let us turn to this outer man and answer all those who are offended by the word faith. So that's really the question of if people are worried that faith as the central idea of freedom brings chaos because no one has to do anything. So is anything good and get done? Luther wants to say things will get done. <laughs> yeah. Because a man does not live for himself alone in this mortal body to work for it alone. Rather, he lives only for others and not for himself. To this end, he brings his body into subjection that he may the more sincerely and freely serve others. As Paul says in Romans 14, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So so basically, Luther is trying to teach exactly what St. Paul taught in the first century. Yeah, um, in Romans 14. And also, well, what does uh, uh, St. Paul Phil- say in Philippians 2? He says, uh, so, so if there is any... T- uh, well, this is Luther quoting uh, Philippians. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if we hear this in the context of relationship, uh, we are doing things not out of our own interests, but out of the interests of others. Why don't I worry about my own interests, Mike? Well, all, all, everything we have, uh, we have all we we need from Christ. Yeah, I don't have to do things for my own interest because Christ is my Savior. And so when I do something, I do it for others because I'm taken care of. I know I'm safe. Yeah. If, if I'm safe, then I'm free to now serve others. If if we have trust in the promises of Christ, right, with the, he promises us treasures beyond belief. He yeah. promises... Luther puts it, I'm abundantly and sufficiently justified by faith. Yeah. And that's so we have everything. So why wouldn't we serve others? Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of. Uh, and if you want to bring in your 19th century German philosophers, this is where Nietzsche really struggles with uh, theology, because he said the Superman uh, is really what should ru- rule and control society, because the one who is able to do for himself will always do so with more desire than him serving others. Yeah. And and I think there you see Nietzsche growing up as a son of a, a pastor and his struggle with what motivates people. And he keeps looking out in a world that's motivated by... By selfishness. By selfishness. And he says, if the world's motivated by selfishness, then I'm going to be more selfish than everybody else. Yeah. And, and Luther is really reacting. I mean, I know they're a couple hundred years apart, but Luther's anticipating Nietzsche's argument and saying you don't need to be selfish because everything is abundantly and sufficiently secured by Christ. Yeah, yeah. So I like the way Luther puts it. He goes, although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches and right of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith, which believes that this is true. And, and so he goes on talking about the joyfully, but I mean, he, so I think he nails There's a that. joy there in yeah. being able to serve others. Now, he puts it in the language um, of our set, second contradictory of being subject to all. Yeah. Um, I'm subject to all uh, because I desire all to be well, is yeah. one way to think of it. Yeah. So Luther also, he, again, in this section, also pummels us with biblical examples uh, to show where works are unnecessary but are done uh, for the benefit of others. Um, in Luke 2.22, when Mary knew her salvation was secured by this child she had just born, she still followed the Old Testament laws and waited for her time of purification to be completed. So, so there's still this obedience that she, uh, that she does enjoy. You yeah. know? And, and when the shepherds came and told Mary about what the angels had sung, she pondered all these things in her heart. Yeah. So Mary trusted that Jesus Christ was the salvation for all the people and brought peace to all people. I, I thought a, a better example that he gives is the, the example of Paul with uh, Timothy and the circumcision of Timothy. 
uh, and versus the circ- the non circumcision of Titus. Yeah, you know. So if you read your Bible, uh, there's a point where where Paul t- circumcises Timothy. Uh, so it doesn't offend the Jews, but a little bit later he refuses to circumcise Titus because the Jews were demanding it. And uh, just a, a thought here: the chapel at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis is the St. Timothy and Titus Chapel, and it's this reminder: we do things uh, out of freedom, not out of demand. Okay. And, and even as a pastor, I mean, I've been taught this: um, don't bring about uh, volunteers by coercion. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, for a while it will. And I think young pastors, and I know I struggled with this, um, I could identify the people in my congregation who if I asked them uh, stern enough or with enough conviction, I could get them to volunteer for anything. Yeah. And I'd burn them out and then I'd find someone else. It's a horrible way to do ministry. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yet now there's more wisdom in saying, all right, I want to get a volunteer not to benefit me. I'm sufficiently abundantly secured in Jesus Christ. I want to get this volunteer for their benefit yeah, and for the benefit of the church. Uh, I think Luther, then there's a third example Luther gives, right? Where he talks about um, uh, Christ's discussion with Peter on the tax money. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where uh, you know uh, Christ points out that the sons of the kingdom are, are free. If you're, if you're the son of a king, you don't pay taxes. Yeah. Right. So this is Matthew 17. If yes, you want to yes, read it yourself. Yes. And so the, the son of the king is free from paying taxes. And we are sons of the king. We are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. But we do it anyway. So as not to cause offense. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is, a, he, again, Luther just again, pummels us with, with biblical uh, So Mike, examples. I'm thinking quarterly taxes due in September. I think I'll be paying. Uh, I'm going to be paying. <laughs> yeah. Not because I have to, but for the benefit of others. <laughs> And because I have to. <laughs> yeah. There is the sword in the sword. <laughs> there is the uh, sword. But uh, Paul Simon, a senator from Illinois, a Lutheran, um, f- former senator, he's, uh, but he had a, an article I read about taxes. And he, in there, kind of outlined this idea that as Christians, we should not resist paying taxes, uh, but should seek the best way to serve our neighbor. Now, he was a Democrat, and certainly he saw government as an agency for improving sure, people, sure. while Republicans generally don't. Yeah. But I always was intrigued by that article, because his view of taxes wasn't something being taken away from you, but something you are giving. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's probably a healthy way to look at it. Um, the, uh, the, the, now, in the last section, he addresses a, a, a premonition of two wrong ways to approach works. And uh, the first one is to be licentious. Yeah, so licentious is a word that is now mostly just used in the church. Um, Licentiousness is living without any law. Okay. Yeah, uh, it comes with the word license, right? Giving yourself license. I have license to do whatever I want. Yeah, yeah. So licentiousness is a bad thing. And so he writes, There are very many who, when they hear the freedom of this faith, immediately turn it into an occasion for the flesh and think that now things are allowed them. They want to show that they are free men and Christians only by despising and finding fault with ceremonies, traditions, and human laws, as if they were Christians because on stated days they do not fast or eat meat when others fast, and because they do not use the accustomed prayers and with upturned nose scoff at the precepts of men, although they are utterly they utterly disregard all else that pertains to the Christian religion. So, there was a pastor in Seattle that would purposely swear in his preaching um, to show that he wasn't subject to uh, to any laws of decency or anything now because he was entirely free in Christ. Mm. Um, yeah. What do you think of that, Mike? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's, I, I think that doesn't serve the neighbor. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't serve the neighbor. That's that. I, and I know Luther, Luther did a little bit like that. You know, he could be a little, you know, intentionally rough around the edges to show, his freedom but the the rules of decency were a little bit different in the 16th century too i think there was just living in the the farms and all things that's true talk about things differently maybe yeah but i think i i appreciate the way you answered that you know i kind of put you on a spot but that sense of does this serve my neighbor yeah and i mean there are children in the in the crowd there's impressionable people of different paths along the journey of being able to know their freedom in Christ. Yeah. So yeah. the second thing that he anticipated would be a wrong way to approach works was, uh, he said, the extreme opposite of these are those who rely for their salvation, 
solely on their reverent observance of ceremonies, as if they would be saved because on certain days they fast or abstain from meats or pray certain prayers. These make a boast of the precepts of the church and of the fathers and do not care a fig for the things which are of the essence of our faith. These are the. This is the worry that there will be people who will um, get so enamored with the ceremonies of the church um, that they won't realize they have failed to communicate salvation by grace through faith. Okay, well, at the end, he, he ends up finishing up this section, uh, pointing to Paul, and he says, How much better is the teaching of the Apostle Paul who bids us to take a middle course and condemns both sides when he says, Let not him who eats despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats. I think someone should read Romans 14, find some uh, strength of how to walk through that tension of how to be in relationship to someone who is still living in subject to their works righteousness and how I know I am free, but they're still subject in their minds. How can I bring them towards that freedom without tearing them down? Yeah. 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 Uh, but what's interesting, and I really like the way he, he finishes this section, or this is pretty much near the end of the whole right. thing. Yeah. And he says, in brief, in brief, as wealth is the test of poverty, business, the test of faithfulness, honors, the test of humility, feasts, the test of temperance, pleasures, the test of chastity. So ceremonies are the test of the righteousness of faith. I, I really like that. It's yeah. this. So how the wealthy think about poverty, that's a good test. Or how um, business and uh, faithfulness go together or honors and humility or feasts and temperance, how these two things live in tension helps say a lot about what you are subject to, what you are a slave to. Yeah. It's, it's funny when, when in wealth, and the way I took that wealth is a test of poverty. Uh, I took that as when, when we have money, it's easy to rely on that money. When we have, yeah. uh, well, it's a question of idolatry, really. Yeah. First commandment, then. Yeah, when when we have all sorts of food, it's easy to partake of that, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and overindulge and uh, non intemperance uh, and so forth. And so he says, you know, once we have all these ceremonies, it's easy to rely on ceremonies. Now you have maybe a different perspective than I, because I've mostly been in churches where I'm the pastor and I'm somewhat in charge of how the ceremonies are conducted. You've been at different churches, so you've had a chance to see the absence or the presence of different parts to the liturgy. Mm. And uh, I I know that some visitors to St. Paul, when they've arrived, have been concerned that I'm not chanting. Oh, really? And Or others are concerned that I have chanted. Yeah, I I sometimes do. And they're concerned that my chanting is meaning that we're a Catholic church. You know, and so there's an example where people have attached some or great, uh, a lot of importance to the presence or absence of a ceremony. Yeah. Have you thought about that as you visit different churches? Actually, yes. Uh, personally, I find ceremonies to be uh, to be a helpful reminder. Uh, I think that this, the the benefit for myself, the benefit of ceremonies is that when you when you go to a church that has no ceremonies, it's really easy to get into a rut. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for those. They create their own ceremony. Though. They create their own ceremony almost, you know, where they'll just hammer on the same things over and over again. Yeah. And one of the benefits of the of the ceremonies is that you're always bringing up the, the critical things that need to be talked about. And mm-hmm. uh, like the whether you're talking about, uh, I, would, I would consider, and having been to many churches, uh, many churches don't have a confession of uh, a, a general confession, you yeah. know, and so they just skip over that. And that's, you know, uh, so it's I, I think that it's it's important to have that cadence to make sure that you hit on all the most important things. But and it yeah, sounds you like the reason you like that cadence is because it helps ensure the faith is shared. And it's fair because you like as, its connection to faith. And I, yes, I, I like its connection to faith. I like that 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 the faith is is shared. Uh, but you're not a slave to the ceremony. Yes, yes. And that's the tension that as he's bringing up these these moments of dialectic between wealth and poverty and all these things, you take this away, are you still a Christian? Or if you oh, yeah. if you add this, can you still be a Christian? Well, there's a, there's a, there are many, many great churches around here that are, you know, um, totally, there's no ceremony. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you have the the, the pastor and, and jeans and you know, rock show and everything yeah. else. And, and that's, you know, they've tried to strip away all the ceremony and do things different every time. And they do a fine job, but they well, what I've noticed is they sometimes skip stuff. So here's what he adds about ceremonies. Hence, ceremonies are to be given the same place in the life of a Christian as models and plans have among builders and artisans. They are prepared, not as a permanent structure, but because without them, nothing could be built or made. When the structure is complete, the models and plans are laid aside. You see, they are not despised. Rather, they are greatly sought after. But what we despise is the false estimate of them, since no one holds them to be real and permanent structure. Ceremonies are dangerous when they're viewed as the permanent structure, rather than what they are building us towards. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. So, so let's. The, so, what's, what's the some fallout? fallout? Yeah. The, the fallout of freedom of a Christian. So uh, the letter, which uh, which was Milton's original purpose uh, for the communication, it was supposed to be this conciliatory letter. Yeah, well, it seems like everybody forgot about it. You know, Luther Luther sort of sent it, and I don't know that it ever really. It didn't created, change. Didn't the change dialogue. anything. It didn't um, move the conversation between the Pope and the and Luther. In fact, our next episode is going to be looking at. Um, the declaration that Luther is a heretic, so obviously freedom of a Christian didn't stop that from happening. No, no, and the, and then, the, but the actual treaties, the freedom of a Christian, really didn't create much of a shakeup because uh, it was you know right after open letter and the Babylonian captivity yeah. of the church. Both of those were much more. So maybe a publisher would have had a different release schedule. You know, movies. Uh, Disney has released their release schedule for up to about three, four years on some major. Uh, of the Pixar movies and the Marvel movies and the Avengers and all these things, right? Yeah. And so maybe if a different release schedule, open letter to the Christian nobility and the Babylonian captivity of the church and freedom of a Christian could have been given more space. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The next episode, uh, we're going to move through this period by looking at the Pope's excommunication of Luther, along with a few of Luther's friends in the bull, uh, Desit Romanum Pontificum. Uh, Pontifesum. All right, so sign off. Uh, uh, we, thanks to Josh, as always. Yeah, thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church. Uh, James Kittleson, Luther and the Reformer, is a, a good biography to place all these things into kind of a historical timeline. And this one, we really relied heavily on uh, on the Luther's works, volume 31. Uh, this... Because that includes the conciliatory letter, besides the freedom of a Christian. If you do just a search for freedom of a Christian on the web, make sure you also take some time to find that letter that Luther wrote to introduce the yeah, of a Christian. Yeah, otherwise you're opening the present without the... Without the card. Without the card. Uh, you can contact us where, Mike? Uh, graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you'd like to host a road trip. We'd love to... love Always love going out and meeting folks. Uh, um, graceontap-podcast.com is our website. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Grace on Tap. Any reviews on iTunes or Stitcher, or TuneIn, or wherever you can get the word out is helpful. Uh, There's now about 4,000 people that have downloaded episodes of Grace on Tap. Uh, Maybe not 4,000 people. 4,000 episodes have been downloaded. And we're pretty excited by the opportunity to share what we are finding exciting in Luther's uh, history and documents and the content of the Reformation, and just enjoying it all over a beer. Prost. Prost. Prost.